Welcome to Musical Osmosis, where intelligent, dissident thought meets melodic, euphonious reality. I am your musically magnanimous host, Nick the Saucy One Cat Source, broadcasting to you as always from the top of Meth Mountain, Tennessee. And I also want to introduce my procussively proficient, but probably quite tired today, co-host, calling <laughs> in from Charm City, the very unlucky Odell Norman tonight. Hey, what's up, man? <laughs> Nothing. Everybody's tired and wrecked. It's been a pretty uh, turbulent day for a lot of people. Yes, it has. <laughs> and it's still, it's still, I still have a little more to do after this. So it's, uh, it's just one of those days, man. That's how life so, is. We're going to try to get you out of here in about 45 minutes. So let's okay. get through this intro stuff quickly. Um, Halloween show. Hey, we've got yeah. a big Halloween show coming up on well, we'll record it on Tuesday with mm-hmm. Bonnie from Death Valley Girls, Jeff Smith from Hickowitz, my God from Max Sabbath, Katie McKell. So that is going to be fun. And then we have Nicholas Brendan from Buffy coming back, uh, mm-hmm. along with who else is coming on that show? Matt Geiler mm-hmm. on our Tin Can Halloween show. Unfortunately, it's Lloyd be crazy. Hoffman is on the set of Suicide Squad right now, so I got to reschedule with them. Yeah. But um, Dana Barnum and all everyone else will be on there. One thing I want to hit, our website is now musicalosmosis.com, very easy. And something I just wanted to bring up real quick, Danielle, I was on there the other day, and they had a thing you can add. Odell, you're gonna, this is going to warp your mind. This is the, <laughs> this is the new next-gen generation like we live in, the Orwellian state we're in. They had an add-on because I subscribed to get the reporting engine. They had an add-on on there. Where you can watch the people browse your website and see what they're clicking around. It'll record everybody who comes on your fucking website. And you Holy can moly. watch them. Yeah. And you can sit here and watch our fans go click around and see what they're clicking on. I didn't add it, <laughs> even though it's part of the package I got, because I just thought it was too intrusive. But is that yeah. fucking insane or what? Yeah, that's a little. That's weird. a little. Yeah, that's a little, I think, a little intrusive. I can actually <laughs> spy. On our fans, if I wanted to. Now, a bunch well, of people I'm, is probably paranoid that I'm going to do it. Nah. I'm deep state. This is deep state osmosis. Deep Thanks. state osmosis. Don't click there. Don't cl- yeah. click here. Click here. That even sounds hypnotic. <laughs> Welcome to deep state osmosis. Putting chips in your head since 1984. That's it. <laughs> Release the nanobots. It, it, I, I was just blown away that I, my site actually has the capability to do that. And it's through what? What's what's our site? Not WordPress anymore. What's it through now? Uh, we actually have our site through Wix. 
through Wix. I can't believe Wix has that kind of fucking technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah. That's like a, a... I mean... That's some crazy you know, Elon Musk type shit, dude. That is nuts. Uh, Edward Snowden. I mean, nowadays you gotta... That's it, yeah. They, they were, I mean, you want... Now you literally can see what people are clicking on. Like, literally. It's not... Oh, this person, you know, you got this many hits here. No, you can actually see people. Oh, they're really going to that. Hence, all the all the crazy things that are geared toward different, you know, the the whole political affiliations and fake, you know, news stories and all that good stuff, you know, by outside influences. Well, I just want our listeners to know, there's no deep state here. No, not at all. We don't have time for that. Musical Osmosis (laughs) has no deep state. I just want to clarify that for all the fans. (laughs) All right, let's get tonight's guest in here because we are in a bit of a rush. Tonight's guest is a Ph.D. holder, a professor of mathematics at Mexico Highlands University, well-regarded music columnist, and of course an icon in the punk scene as one of the founding members of the Angry Samoans, professor, writer, musician, and all-around goodwill-hunting-level brainiac, Mr. Greg Turner. Greg, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. Good, oh, good. Awesome. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for joining us. I know you're wiped out from, I mean, such an arduous job being a professor. Well, I, I drive 60 miles each way to my school, so that's the burnout part of it. Right wow. On. Are you Ooh. like me where you blast music the whole time and kind of zone out and put yourself on autopilot? <laughs> I should. I just uh, drive each way thinking of theorems and uh, proofs of what I haven't done to my classes. Oh, my God. So are you seeing a world <laughs> like um, Life of Pi? Everything is like all these abstract shapes and stuff spinning around everywhere. No, I'm not that bad. I'm not quite as obsessive compulsive as I used to be. All right. Well, that's progress. <laughs> All right, before we dig into Angry Samoans and your more recent projects like Blood um, Drain Cows and your solo work, I do want to talk about your academic career. And one of the reasons I want to talk about this is there was an article circulating on the Internet and on social media in particular about um, Dexter Holland from The Offspring. And he has a master's degree in molecular biology. And when you look at those comment threads of the fans – they're just like blown away. They're like, I can't believe someone in the punk world has an advanced degree. And like people were blown away by this. And as somebody who grew up in a punk scene, I've always known there's been a lot of very smart people in punk rock. Milo has a high yeah. you know, advanced yep. degree from Descendants, a couple of cats from Bad Religion, Dan Yemen yep. from Lifetime. I mean, the list goes on and on. I what think you- uh, Phil Alvin has a PhD in math also. Yeah, I think I'm, so. Yeah. Yeah. That's yep. There's just this long list of academics in punk rock and I and I looked through, I did some research and it's more so than the other genres of music. What do you think attracts such intelligent people to the punk genre? Oh, I think to, I can't speak for others in different areas, but in math you've got to be a little neurotic. So I think that ties in well with uh, the Samoans. <laughs> I mean, for sure. And we're going to talk about that legacy um, shortly. One thing that bothered me when I was looking at that Dexter Holland article was how many people like there's this stigma that everybody in punk is like, you know, whatever the guy from the exploited's name is or Johnny Rotten or something, that they're all just these like drunken degenerates. When actually there is a lot of very focused, very sharp minded individuals in it. What do you think? Is it just bad apples spoiling the bunch? What do you think is punk as somebody who doesn't know about it? This stigma of it's just a bunch of like indecent dregs of society, a bunch of reprobates. Well, I think it's a lot of angry energy. I'm, I'm actually, since you asked, I'm, I'm I brought this up. I'm teaching a course in the spring that my university is sort of begrudgingly letting me do called the history of punk rock. And, uh, so we're going to have, uh, it's going to run every Thursday for three hours here in Santa Fe. And I'm going to get a lot of guest speakers like Keith Morris and uh, Mike Watt and think maybe Jello. Nice. You know, but another um, really smart guy, too. Well, I'm trying to figure out for this class exactly what the format's going to be and exactly what is punk rock per se. I mean, punk rock was the name given to a lot of the fuzz tone bands of the 60s. And it was sort mm-hmm. of appropriated those words back in the late 70s with the Ramones after that first started. 
Um, but I, my my take on it is that Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis in the 50s were pretty punk rock. And then it progressed to the Kinks in the beginning and the Sonics and things like that. And then I think what I'm going to do is make my class listen to 10 hours of Genesis and Yes to appreciate why the Ramones had to happen. Wow. <laughs> Fortune is so it, well needed. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Odell. Oh, no, no. I just want to say I know um, a lot of that stereotype came from just like like Hollywood and, 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 and society and it's, and it's, uh, you know, like mainstream society, if you will. I mean, if you watched all the old movies back in the day, uh, like in the late, late, especially, you know, Nick and I are in our mid forties. So I remember being a little kid and, and the first thing I would see, you know, a kid with a mohawk or whatever on a movie was like the bully or the bad guy in the alley, you know, wearing a leather jacket with spikes or whatever. So it, it was always taken to that point until like I being from uh, the nation from being from DC, the DC area. And you look at how a lot of artists were really into, you know, the, what was going on in politics in it. And, and that's where I got informed a lot of was through that uh, realm. So it totally just wiped that whole stigma away for me personally. Yeah. I think, I think to me, punk rock is an anger and an energy and a anti-conformity, whatever the rebellion was against. I mean, if you listen to Barry Maguire singing Eve of Destruction in 1965, and you hear the angst and the anger in his voice, that's pretty damn punk rock. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll take it one step further. I, I would say some of the founding fathers, Thomas Paine, Patrick Henry, Sam Adams, were punk rock. Yeah, and you can get you can go back to Euclid. So, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. So, I mean, I, punk to me has always been an attitude. I remember when I got this epitaph, um, CD years ago and the Coop was on it, which was a rap band. And I had some punk friends are like, what the fuck's a rap band doing on here? And I was like, dude, listen to what they're singing. About. Listen to their politics and the street level cultural stuff they're singing about. To me, punk yep. was never which chords you hit on a guitar, but it was your attitude and how you presented yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hostility that for to whatever context or whatever it's sort of devoted to. It's sort of a fist clench type of in-your-face uh, brashness and whatever, as I said, the context or how that arose during different stages of musical history, it's there. It just took the form that people recognized when the, in the late 70s with uh, Patti Smith and the Ramones and the Dictators and things like that, but it was there before. Hey, I got to tell you one thing, if it's okay. You mentioned uh, you were talking about math and uh, academia in music. This is a funny story, and I'll forget it if I don't tell it now. Um, yeah, when please. Simone, when the Samoans were hitting their peak, oh, I'd say 85-ish, something like that, we were playing this club called The Channel in Boston. And there must have been like a thousand kids there. And we didn't even know we were headlining. They flew us out. And, uh, you know, we thought, and they put us up at a Marriott. And we just thought, wow, they have a lot of money to blow on a lot of crap. And, and that show uh, was kind of a turning point for you guys too, right? Yeah, that was huge. I mean, we played mm -hmm. Lights Out, our Poke Your Eyes Out song in the middle of the set, and there was about 50 kids in a row that had white plastic forks that did mock eyeball impalement gestures. And I almost passed <laughs> out on stage. I thought one of them's going to slip, <laughs> and the parents are going to be personal injury attorneys, and this is going to be Black Sabbath backmasking one better, right? But anyway, Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, but anyway, so... After we were done with our set, this kid, this, this you know, 13-year-old pierced Mohawk kid comes back and he's holding a book. And I had done a couple interviews uh, prior to that when they were asking about, you know, I was a graduate student at the time in math and all this. And the book, he says, will you sign this? And I said, what is it? And I look at it and it says, Introduction to Fourier Analysis. And I said, where did you get that? It seemed very unlikely that at his age he was studying it. He says, what does it matter? And I said, where did you get it? All right, I stole it from my brother. What the fuck? Are you going to sign it or not? <laughs> I thought, I thought, well, maybe, this is being a, maybe this is a good influence. You know, it's okay. It's <laughs> Hardcore <laughs> academics. Yeah. yeah. Street fights with like slide rules and fucking um, textbooks and stuff. Yeah, you take slide rules and you just hit people over the head with them now. Yeah, exactly. Hey, you know, and this kind of leads me to the next point I wanted to bring up. I, When putting this episode together, I'm pretty diligent with my research, and I had found this article, this interview with you in Terminal Boredom, and I thought it was going to be a music 
interview, but it was actually mm-hmm. about your academic work. And it was like field of research, matrix theory, and finite dimensional control theory. And it had equations in the in the fucking article, in the interview. It had equations. And I was, like I said in the intro, this was like some next-gen goodwill hunting shit. I couldn't wrap my brain mm-hmm. around. When Yeah, my uh, my dissertation, I, the title was, if I can paraphrase, it was something like... Uh, stabilization of systems of differential equations with feedback delays and the feedback was the important point because i grew up on like white light white heat in the velvet underground and there was feedback there so i I thought the irony wasn't lost to me right and i mean when you're living in those two worlds and this is what i find fascinating when you have one foot so firmly in academia and then you have another one like firmly cemented in the punk rock or underground music world do you feel like that gives you an edge in both, or do you feel like it's a little bit alienating? It's a subtraction. I mean, if I I, really? I, I always think that. Well, I think back that if I just did one thing, I'd be really excellent at it. So mm-hmm. maybe I'm good at a few things. I mean, I'm academic scum. I've only published three papers since my PhD. Oh my! And How and dare you? And uh, yeah, well, in <laughs> academic circles, you're considered quite the low life for doing that. You're like the Rodney um, Dangerfield yeah. yep. Caddyshack of academics. Right. <laughs> I can't, I can't get no respect. That's for sure. And, uh, you know, but, uh, so if I put all my time to that, maybe I'd be more prolific, maybe not, but, uh, you know, but on the other hand, if I had divorced the math business and just put all my energy into music and recording more, maybe I would have made more of that as it is right now. I don't know, but I enjoy being eclectic. So, um, are there any regrets then? Or are you kind of like, look, this was the path I was always going to take and I'm not looking back. No, I don't. I mean, looking back, I think I ironically, I mean, I'm in a backwater backwash university. It's a five year university. We have graduate programs, but it's not Cornell or Stanford or UCLA. So, you know, I mean, it's it's on a certain sense. It's it's I didn't amount to too much. On the other hand, it's perfect for me because it gives me a lot of time to do the music and write stuff. And uh, so it gives me some creative opportunity, not just to be hunkered down in academia, which I think would drive me nuts. Gotcha. When did when did you um figure out that you had this thing like with math? Uh, was it at an early age? Was I mean, or, well, both actually, music and math. How did that? Because you know, a lot of times when you're in that scene, like Nick was talking about earlier, yeah, that um, you know, it's like, oh man, look look at the brain over here. How did how did how did that work out? How did you figure those two things out? I was just always quick and good in math, and and to be honest with you, I was lazy. So. When I got to undergraduate, when I was went to UCLA, it was just the easiest thing to do where I didn't have to work very hard. So, gotcha. you know, I mean, it was, I, it was just convenient. Um, but, you know, in graduate school, when you do a PhD in math, it's, it's, it's a bitter pill to swallow because after you pass qualifying exams, which take a certain life force out of you, then you get two years to do a dissertation. And the problem they give you in math is totally unknown. I mean, there may not be a solution to it. And there's thousands of problems like that. Or if there's a solution, you may not be able to prove it. Even either way, you're fucked. And it's the worst form yeah. of delayed gratification in the world. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm treading water with 50 pages of equations trying to see if they'll connect. And it got so bad that the little apartment I was staying in in grad school about a year before I was finished had equa- whiteboard equations on the walls and on the floor. And there was one huge space in the middle that I couldn't connect. If I did connect it with all the other stuff in the middle there, it would have been finished. But it, six months went by and I couldn't do it. And I thought, shit, this is like intractable. I'm never going to do this. And I had a dream one night where my equations came to life as little people. And in the dream, I, one equation told me to meet the other equation. They introduced themselves. The other equation was angry and said, fuck you. We've given you one year to work with us and you haven't done shit, man. We're going to just bail. And no, no, don't do that. Give me another chance. I can be friends with you. No, fuck you. You're an asshole. And I woke up in a cold sweat. I mean, just like hyperventilating. I thought, this is really getting bad. And I went to see a shrink for the first time because I was really getting worried. And I told my yeah. shrink that my, that my equations were dissing me. And he, <laughs> says, this, and he looked at me and goes, this is really bad, man. He says, you've got to just make peace with this. And I didn't even know what that was supposed to mean. And then about two days later, I came back and I had an idea and a thought of something I hadn't thought of before put that in place and it worked. I was so lucky. 
And your dreams are prolific sounding and also um, have some kind of positive effect after, you know, after you went through the crazy. My last dream, I was tripping on acid with Patrick Stewart and trapped Mm -hmm. in a lion's den. That's nice. And that that didn't help me in real life at all, except to get a couple chuckles on Facebook when I posted about it. I hardly ever remember my dreams. But when I do, they're just like this random cultural bullshit. Yeah, I I hear you. you know, it was it was a pretty rocky road for me in graduate school. I was just, I mean, the Samoans were playing until 1991, and that's when I right. finished my dissertation. And uh, it was back and forth between the two, and that wasn't helping me in terms of, uh, you know, concentration. And then the school newspaper, I went, my graduate school was the Claremont Colleges, Harvey Mudd's an engineering school there, and Scripps is a women's college, and uh, Pomona is a pretty highbrow liberal arts school. And my dissertation supervisor was in Pomona, and uh, the I was giving my supervisor just excuses every three weeks when I met with him of why I wasn't coming up with the home run or the new result, and I didn't know what to say, and I was just making excuses. And then the school newspaper writes a story on me. I didn't even know this was coming out, and it circulated all over campus, and it says, academic by day, scumbag by night. <laughs> oh, great. And I thought, this is just what I need. And I went into his office, the dissertation supervisor, and he's reading it. I thought, oh, my God. And I just wanted to dig a hole in the ground and jump in. Somehow it all worked out. I mean, it was it was sort of crazy. I mean, you're a sharp guy. There's no denying that. And I want to talk, touch on this real quick before we get to some music. You being on the front lines, interacting with kids, and when I say kids, you know, 25 and younger, Every day. And then also you kind of being at the inception of punk rock. And this is a very ridiculously broad question, but I just kind of wanted to get your take on this. What do you feel is the biggest difference between kids today, anyone under 25, Mm. and kids when you started out in the punk scene 70s and 80s? Well, my exposure to quote unquote kids now, of course, is students in my classes and, and some kids of, you know, that are uh, progeny of students of friends that I have. So I'm not, I don't get quite, quite the same wavelength in, in terms of interaction as I used to, but today's kids just seem a lot more, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, soporific. I mean, just, just not so much laid back, but just sort of, uh, uh, out of the, out of the mainstream of caring about too much. I mean, it just, it isn't the same type of angst and energy of, uh, you know, kids that I remember or what I was a part of back then. I mean, and maybe that's just the circles I traveled in. I don't know. I mean, that's mm. true. I mean, there's so much instant gratification and you need a meme. I mean, you don't know how many times I've been on a political post to see it degenerate right. and people just posting memes at each other, angry fucking memes. Yeah. And I'm like, this All is day. a political discussion? Kermit the Frog versus... Well, look, look kids, kids today are facing extinction. I mean, that's you know, true. Can you imagine being point. 20 and thinking that you may not live or the earth may not be around 20 years from now? I mean, it's it's pretty dire. Um, yeah, I don't know how they haven't gone children of the corn on us yet. I keep making that point. Yeah, right. I would be fucking pissed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, let me hit this last academic point. In your class, do any of you did do most of your students, none of your students know who you are music-wise? And do any of them take your class just because you're Greg from Angry Simones? It's funny, before I answer that real quick, I was David Lowry from Cracker is a good friend of mine, and he's an academic at the University of Georgia in Athens. Mm. And so mm-hmm. I, he, they, Cracker played out here. I, I really like them. And they played out here a couple months ago, and I asked him the same thing. I said, do your students, are they hip? He goes, yeah. He says, they look on YouTube. And he said, you know, he says, but I make a big distinction between having that distract them and what I do. And so it's the same with me. I mean, kids now in my classes, they know about it through school and they look it up on YouTube. And the only time it's sort of like uh, I bite on the towel is when one of them comes up to me and said, did you write They Saved Hitler's Cock? And I said, shh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you if you ever walk into the class and Hitler's Cock is written across the blackboard. Or no, no, they don't, do, they, they don't do that. But they'll put me aside in private and say, uh, you know, uh, was your old man really a fatso? I said, no, that was the singer's old man. So. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> All right, let's shift gears and talk some angry Simones. Um, looking over their history, and you guys have quite the legacy, how do you feel? I mean, you have so much distance from it now. How do you feel now 
Do you kind of look back with reverence? Do you look back a little bit with like disgust or recoil at all the drama? Are you indifferent to the whole thing because it's been so long? How do you feel today about the angry Samoans legacy? Well, it sort of keeps continuing, which is strange to me. I mean, I never in the 80s, I never would have imagined 30, 40 years in the future, anyone would care. And in fact, when we started playing, it was like eight friends. No one would have imagined that more than 20 people would have, you know, followed us around. Um, from the very first gig we played, where there were real angry Samoans that confronted us in a parking lot. And our bassist oh, had to run and get, he had to run and get a case of Mickey's Big Mouth to sort of get them uh, lubricated. Wow, and, that's uh, old that, school. Yeah, and then we became Samoan soulmates, and they helped us carry in our gear. Big guys. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, all that era was pretty tumultuous. Now, apparently, there's a huge boom with millennials as far as old school punk rock, and I just signed a deal with Triple X Records, who are back in business. They used to be around 30 years ago, and mm-hmm. uh, they're going to re-release the whole Samoans catalog on vinyl, CD, digital and the whole thing in about two months you know what makes a legendary band in my opinion there's many components to it but one of the things that makes a legendary band and the misfits kind of had the same deal going on angry samoans i've been listening to you guys for years and i don't really go through and look at catalogs i'm not that music obsessed where i do that but when i was researching for the show and i pulled up your discography i was like wait they only have three like LPs out and a couple EPs like that's fucking crazy. I thought these cats had like 20, 30 albums out and you can always tell a great band when they only put a couple albums out and have such a cultural impact. Yeah. Well, you know, the, and it was a real Rocky road in terms of putting those records out. The second one back from Samoa, which was the one that sort of caught fire was distributed by IRS through faulty records. And they, apparently distributed out and circulated about 150,000 LPs, CDs, and eventual CDs, and then cassettes at the time. And then they went bankrupt, owing us a whole shitload of money, which we never saw. But the you never product saw it. was out there. Jeez. No, no. Unbelievable. Gem re-released it again about five years, six years after that, and they went bankrupt and owed us a lot of money. You know, and it's funny, too, because I worked at the Olive Garden in the mid-'90s, and mm-hmm. this this thought, I hadn't thought about this in years until I was setting this interview up. There was a guy who's a bartender at Olive Garden named Greg, and we mm-hmm. all worked in the kitchen. And there was a few punk kids back there, and he t- he used to tell people he was in the Angry Samoans. And this is yeah, I remember you were telling me. I remember you were telling me that, Nick. <laughs> yeah, is that crazy? And now here yeah. I am actually talking to you, but he's like, yeah, I was in the Angry Samoans on their first album, and blah blah. And you had no way of fucking fact checking shit back then. And Maybe um, it's true. <laughs> was there another Greg? That, I don't remember the cat's last name. I, I didn't really I know. know him directly, but I just remember that rumor going around Olive Garden and my buddy Pat telling me, yeah, that dude said he was in Angry Samoans and he knows all this stuff about him. And I was like, yeah, that seems unlikely. He'll be bartending in Waldorf, Maryland at an yeah, Olive there's Garden. A, there's, a, there's a pizza place in Tucson, Arizona that has the Angry Samoan pizza you can order. And it has a chili peppers, rotten cheese, their quote, and uh, not terribly clean from the kitchen. Well, there you go. The legacy has been cemented. I, I, you I, can I, walk away. You don't need anything else. That could we be got a pizza. Legacy. Yeah. <laughs> Look me poor American. All right, let's dig into a little bit of the drama, the feud between the band and the yes. local yes. DJ. Is it Rodney Barenheimer, Bingenheimer? Bingenheimer. Bingenheimer, like that guy, that guy got you blacklisted all over LA. I want to talk about that. And then what was the catalyst between you and Metal Mike that eventually led to things spiraling out of control? Well, with Rodney, Rodney was a DJ at the time we were playing in town. And, but I mean, he was this sort of nitwit groupie that sort of landed on the scene in the late sixties. He, he was, he had his English disco and pledged allegiance to all the glam rock and, the minute that lost its focus or buzz, then he went to the next thing and the next thing. So the guy had, I mean, beyond the fact that he was an imbecile, there was like no, no credibility to anything aesthetic that he latched onto. It was just sort of like, you know, whatever he could ride coattails with. And, you know, he, as I said, he was a moron. I mean, he would get on his radio show and he could hardly talk. And the Patti Smith group was on. He looked at Lenny Kane and said, so how, how long have you been playing bass? You know, oh, things God. like that. 
And, oh uh, gosh! But it was it was it was political because a lot of the bands that he was having on were the Hollywood bands, and we were from the San Fernando Valley, and never really a part of the Hollywood scene, nor were we invited to be included. Were these more we glam wrote, metalish type bands that were kind no, of? No, I mean like like I'm talking about like X and the Germs and things gotcha. like that. Okay. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, you know, yeah, X, yeah. X X was considered the art poet band, and we were yes. just you know just bullshit filthy kids from the valley that were trying to create a ruckus that wasn't considered as you know aesthetically amenable and um but what happened is we wrote this song about rodney called get off the air on our first ep and you know it was like 8 p.m and rodney's on the air he's beating off in joan jett's hair you know and, and we thought we thought actually that he would listen to it and think oh yeah this is pretty punk rock they hate me that's as valid as anything else but instead he freaked out and decided it was an attack. And he bribed every band in LA, like X and whatever, that he would give them free and extra radio time if they agreed not to let us be on any of that they weak. played in Hollywood. So, and Holy cow. X, X was the first ones to come down on their knees with their mouths open to Rodney and say, no, they're, they're shit, we're poets. And, uh, you know, so... Um, it, it turned out ironic because we couldn't get any gigs in Hollywood or any of the hip spots that were going on. Even the mask was sort of alien to us. And uh, so we had to go out to all the skate shows out in Whittier and Long Beach and all the mm-hmm. suburbs way out in the way. And that's where heart for punk was just starting to morph into hardcore. And we were scared to death that if we played in front of mosh pits, uh, because our music wasn't very fast at the time, but they beat the shit out of us. So we triple timed everything. I mean, just to stay alive. And uh, pretty soon we were playing with TSOL and Social Distortion and all those other bands that were playing fast. And that's how we became popular. It was sort of just by being excised from the scene that it threw us into some sort of niche where uh, people like what we were doing. It was really peculiar. Unbelievable. Um, so when you were first starting out, because, I mean, you're talking late 70s and the genre was, was so new, did people understand what you were doing when they were coming out to those early shows or was there a lot of like head scratching? A lot of head scratching. I mean, you know, Vom started first with me and Saunders right. and Meltzer and that morphed into the Samoans. So, you know, we weren't sure where we were going. We were just having fun doing it. And, uh, when Vom ended because Meltzer was deciding he was too exhausted and overwhelmed to do this anymore. Uh, I convinced Saunders at the time to say, let's keep going. We have some really swell top 40 songs like electrocute your cock and I'm in love with your mom. I mean, that's bound to be, you know, hit radio, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Easy <laughs> listening. So, Big man. <laughs> Big Clark. So, you know, we were, we were watching, uh, uh, professional wrestling, which was cool back then, it you know it, it soon became horrible. But uh, there's this wrestling tag team called the Wild Samoans, Asa and Sika. Yes. And yep. you know, and so I was Saunders. And I was watching. I was explaining to him what it was about because he wasn't as much of a Freddie Blassie, John Tolos fan as I was. And he said, he looked at me, and says, "Well, you know, they're not. They're sort of they're wild, but they're not very angry. Because they need to be more angry." And then that just hit me. I said, "That's it." And within two weeks, we put in ads out in the classified to shop a drummer and bass player. But it didn't take long. The bass player himself, Todd Homer, put an ad in the recycler in the music classifieds. And it said, angry bass player, uh, looking for angry sounds. And I thought, this is too easy. And he goes, Todd, (laughs) the hip, he called himself Todd, the hippie stabber Homer. Oh wow! <laughs> and I thought this, this. I said this is being presented with a piece of cake to us, you know. And sure enough, he was he was this really sort of humble, quiet, clean cut kid that had this internal rage. And I thought this is just the best you can get. And then we got our drummer, and then that was it. We just started, you know, uh, writing songs. Saunders and I wrote most of the stuff. Uh, would one of us would do lyrics, one with the music, or we'd switch or do both together. And we were sort of each other's muses. I mean, we'd crack up doing Lights Out because we thought the nihilism in hardcore was so stupid or silly, but it was great. You know, why not encourage them to poke their eyes out? So we'd do this stuff, you know, back and forth and just laughing hysterically. We couldn't even finish writing it. And it sort of wrote itself. 
you know, we didn't realize that people would take it to heart and actually think this is cool, but what the hell? <laughs> that's so awesome. Oh my goodness. I know, uh, just some of the bands you named and, 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 and you're and playing with them. Did at that time, did you realize how like legendary you guys and those bands that you just mentioned would become? Because in, in the punk rock fabric that, that you guys are like sewed into that. So did, well, time, did you ever realize time, that? At the time, it just seemed like self-immolation. I mean, just everything was going to kill itself in about 10 seconds. No one ever suspected <laughs> there'd be any staying power or longevity with it. I mean, that's why things got slowed down. Darby crashed, you know, self-destructed in two years. I mean, oh, no one yeah, had, he did. You know, yeah. no, one, no one thought there was any energy invested that was going to pay off big or have any sort of legacy or long-standing uh, enduring quality it was just you know that's if i as i said if during that time i had imagined 30 years into the future i thought who the hell is going to care you know it's, it's it's amazing to me that it's sort of lived on well i think it's because it was authentic and authenticity goes a long way and when when you're connecting with people when you see this with people who are culturally gigantic like eminem when you kind of yeah. tap into that rage and you can phrase things in a snarky sarcastic way i mean that's what got me into playing in punk bands was seeing the vandals play in the mid 90s right. and i was like right. holy mm-hmm. shit and then i got into the vindictives and bands like that and i was mm-hmm. like there's kind of an all-american sickness mad magazine pt barnum to this whole punk culture at least that's how i saw it well, that's, that's why how i was we, that's how we saw it too but no one else did i mean everybody was so serious about the rage and and what they were trying to go after and as I said, X was so serious about themselves as artists and poets and the whole thing. Um, I, I, we were one of the few, except maybe for Keith Morris of the Circle Jerks or Black Flag and everything, yeah. that had any sense of like making fun of ourselves or being self-deprecating. I mean, to me, Black Flag was great with Keith because he had a sense of humor and it was funny. Mm-hmm. I, I sensed the backdrop of all that loud noise and anger. But when Henry Rollins came around, it is Macho Man, which that was just pathetic. <laughs> I see what you're saying, man, and I definitely gravitate. Like I said, we do get rich quick scheme and throw buckets of play money out in the audience. And I had a blow up doll named Sally Smutchko who had her own MySpace page. And I just thought there was something very there's nothing more American to me than PT Barnum, Mad Magazine. These yeah, things that sure. just kind of culture like mock the culture and right. satirize everything. And I just kind of thought that's what punk rock was was A making a political statement, but not ramming it down your throat. Being tongue in cheek yeah. about almost Alice Cooper vaudevillian about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you there. I, I, I couldn't, do, I couldn't agree more. All right, so let me get back to the falling out with Metal Mike. But let me ask you this: <laughs> In your opinion, Angry Samoans were in the, the original lineup. Was it so volatile that it was always destined to implode and crash and burn, or do you think there was things that could have been done that could have saved and preserved that original lineup? <laughs> I, I think. That's a good question. I, I, I just think that the personalities involved were always butting heads and trying to kill each other. And that kind of, you know, implosion was what sort of, you know, expanded outward to people. So it was what the, the vitriol that you see in the rage was real. I mean, it was just, you know, I, I, it, it was mainly Todd who was sort of the voice of insanity. And, uh, you know, Saunders and I would write songs to get him going. And, uh, uh, and then it wasn't, then he and I were sort of muses as far as uh, cultivating that, I think. Um, our influences were, I mean, I always say that if Rocky Erickson and or the dictators hadn't have happened, there would have been no angry Samoans because the dictators were the first loud band that made fun of themselves and were funny in a very clever way. And Rocky mm-hmm. was just nuts, but it was, I mean, the visceral impact that he dialed was incredible. So it's, we, we, our goal from the outset was to sort of blend the two and see if we could. I mean, those were pretty two disparate, you know, quantities and uh, to try to blend them together in some way that was coherent uh, seemed really difficult, but it just came naturally once we got Todd. So. But well, do you think it would have been salvageable in any way or was it just too toxic of a mixture? It was too toxic. I mean, it was it was the toxicity in the beginning was was manageable and it came out in the music. But after a while, it started everyone start going after each other. And it was ah. unclear why exactly. But it was just, you know, it was just uh, poison. 
I mean, gotcha. it was just, you know, you, you, you eat poison mushrooms and either quickly or later on you get sick. So the most obvious question, of course, and I'm sure one every fan wants to know, is there any chance of the original lineup getting back together and playing any shows? Well, you know, as, as the Triple uh, X is putting out all this re-release, they're going to do vinyl, 180-gram vinyl, CDs, even cassettes now that I'm told are back in vogue, which I have no Yeah, clue. yeah. You know, it's crazy. And, yep, uh, there, there are. <laughs> they're going to go digital in a big way, trying to get the catalog on Spotify and Sirius and uh, Amazon and all of that. So, you know, they, they would love it if we did that. Um, there's problems involved. I mean... I, in fact, I talked to Todd Homer about two days ago for the first time in 25 years over this reissue wow. business. And uh, we got along great. I mean, it's like he, he was very kind, and which is a strange word for Todd, but he seemed very <laughs> generous. And uh, we got along great. And we sort of threw it out that, yeah, maybe that'd be fun to do that because a couple of promoters over the years have contacted us that if the, the original lineup got back, there would be a uh, big interest, which again, at the time I said, really? I mean, I had no idea. And, uh, but there's problems. I mean, first of all, one problem is I'm an old guy. I don't think I can downstroke on guitar that uh-huh. fast. I mean, I have to <laughs> practice for months just to, you know, uh, I mean, I just turned I think that energy would find you though. I just turned 64 in June. If you cut off my wrist, you could count the rings like a fucking redwood tree at this point. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know. And then Mike is a recluse now. Um, he and I, as I okay. said, were sort of were bitter with each other for a long time. And then for last over the last three years, we've sort of thrown in the towel. And I get these big packages from him every Christmas as presents with all this old um, 45s and LPs that uh, where Lou Reed played on Pickwick City Records when he was he and Kale were doing these budget uh demos and things like that and he knows i like that stuff and he sends me stuff and i thank him profusely and, and the last two christmases and i said let's keep in touch and then i don't hear from him i send him stuff i never hear a thing and, and he and billy the drummer were playing using the name angry simones and that's what sort of started the problems because we played our last show as a band all together and at the club lingerie in hollywood in 1991 and everyone was mm-hmm. exhausted and I was exhausted and thought we are taking this about as far as it can go. Let's at least take a break, if not put an end to this. And I was, as I said, just finishing grad school at the time anyway. And uh, everyone agreed. And then Saunders couldn't let it go six months later and, and started doing it himself. I mean, I had no problem if he did solo stuff or whatever, but he started calling it Angry Samoans. And I just thought, you know, I didn't uh, do that. I didn't yeah, know yeah, 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 yeah. Plus, he wasn't selling a very good product. What I saw was just fucking embarrassing. And uh, then he got together with Billy about five years after that, I think. And they started using the name for about eight or ten years playing around. And it was I've seen videos of it. And I, the only thing I could do to watch it, to force myself to watch it, would be to bite on the towel while Holy I was seeing shit. it. I mean, he was doing stuff like throwing out stuffed animals to the audience and hopping up and down on the stage with a backwards baseball cap looking ancient it just you know mm-hmm. i mean yeah this, if you want uh, to it, see, this doesn't sound like it's going to happen then well i don't know i mean but as i said uh um he and i all I, I met mike in 1974 he was living in hollywood and I walked up into his flat. I was introduced to him. And our mutual love was the 13th floor elevators in Rocky. And Rocky's solo career hadn't started at that point. And I, you know, I walked into his apartment and uh, we talked about all this stuff. And he was a little peculiar, a little sort of into himself, just shy and, and sort of crazy. And he would play his guitar through his speakers and his stereo system with a blanket over one of the stereo speakers. And the others, all the stuff coming out of the one speaker. And that was his way of creating mono because he hated stereo. And he would do his, his Mark Bull and T-Rex imitations who were really great. I thought, this guy's really off his rocker. And then he <laughs> came over to my house with, I had a couple friends over and he brought his guitar and his amp. He said, I want you to hear a new song. I said, what's that? And he, he plays it and it was called Getting High with Stephen Stills. And I thought, you know, <laughs> this is really good. This guy's great. And 
we didn't even think of putting a band together. We just stayed in touch and share, you know, it was mostly making fun of other people. It was pretty sort of uh, passive aggressive, but uh, he was great. And so, you know, the, we had a bond that was pretty strong that lasted a long time. It's just that he got crazy. There was a big snafu in terms of um, publishing royalties and uh, of course, and Mm -hmm. uh, residuals from uh, money that was, that did come back from the sales of back from Samoa, but I was handling it, but it was nothing came back to me personally that he thought. So he's an accountant and he's very paranoid and he sort of thought that I was ripping him and the band off, which was anything but the case. There and it is. Then it just, then it just got ugly. And between yeah. that and him using the name of the bands, it, it got pretty foul and he was ranting and raving to people. And, uh, and then, Todd and I had stayed out of touch and it just got sort of to be like a cesspool of bad energy. Sounds like it. Um, we've got to uh, get Odell out of here and I want to play a song yeah. real quick too, before we get out. Odell, um, you've got life stuff to do, adult stuff to do. Yeah. So we will get yep, you I out did. of here and then we're going to play a song and come right back and finish up with Greg Turner. Um, Greg, we're going to play something off. Greg Turner plays the hits. I dreamt I met Lou Reed. Do you want to tell us anything about this before we hit play? Well, this was before Lou died. So the dream was still alive. Um, uh, Lou, is, Lou is my hero. I don't care much for a lot of his solo stuff, but the Velvets, I would, Velvet go to parties. I would go to parties when I was 14 years old. And, you know, all my idiot friends were, couldn't get the Eagles off the turntable. And I would take the records like Frisbees and throw them at the wall and put on Sister A and uh, got kicked out of parties and lost a whole bunch of friends. But that was it. I mean, Lou was there for me. And, uh, you know, that that was where the song came from. Right on. All right. Let's, awesome. um, Odell, thanks for calling in. Yep. We'll be back uh, thanks, Greg. in a few days yeah. with our Halloween show. And, Dee, do you want to play some? I dreamt I was Lou. I met Lou Reed. Don't know a lot about anything But I Know what's good when it comes to me So when I Close my eyes late last evening I dreamed That I met Lou Reed He wasn't mean to me wasn't even a creep So I went back to sleep And I said, Lou I have just three verses And I need the chorus To make it all sound complete And he said, you Well, what's this song called anyway? And I said, fear, my song's called Fear If You Please. He walked right by me, he looked in my eyes, he said, what you need, it's a one, four, five. Fear is the thing that makes you so insecure, then you become controlling motherfucker, yeah. Don't know a lot about most things Oh, but I Know what works when it comes my way So when I Woke up the next morning I wrote down the words That I heard him say Fear is the thing that makes you so insecure Then you become controlling motherfucker Fear is the thing that makes you so insecure Then you become controlling motherfucker, yeah! Oh, now I think what we need here is a solo just for Lou Can you make that thing get that sound, man? 
so shy, so shy and reserved But now I'm a man with a chorus and a verse Fear is the thing that makes you so insecure Then you become controlling motherfucker yeah. I dreamed I met Marie Oh I dreamed I met Marie He wasn't mean to me wasn't even a creep Just like Joe Meek Yeah I Dreamed I met Marie Oh I Alrighty, we have returned A little bit later without Odell Um one point, I'm going to make one more angry Samoan point, and then we got to move on. Yeah. As a fan, I always thought the song, The Time Has Come, would be great for the opening of like a really cool punk or indie movie. That song just has such a resonance to it, where it just paints such a picture in my head of just memories or being on the road. That is a truly great song. It just, I wish it would have ended up in a movie at some point. You mean Time, time Has Come Today? Yeah, the time has come. Time is like I love that dawn. Well, you know dawn, that was that was the original hit by the Chambers Brothers in the '60s. And oh, uh, was that a remake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I was didn't our know cover that. of it. Yeah, theirs was a lot more sort of labored and psychedelic, but I always loved that. And the Ramones wound up doing a cover of it also, but we did a video with it and got the original singer and songwriter Joe Chambers to be in it. He played the president of the United States, and Todd tried to push the button on his desk that would destroy the world. Oh, man, I would and, love uh, to see that. You know, and, and Joe, Joe laughed and said, like, I just, you know, as a black dude, I don't want to be the president and on his watch have the world blow up. And I said, it's so totally okay. I said, you know, that's what we're about, blowing up the world. And he sort of, he said, oh, okay, is that what punk rock's about? I said, yeah, blowing up the world. And he, he loved that. Right on. All right. Well, let's talk about what you're working on and get you out of here. The Blood Drain okay. Cows, are, is that still a project that's going on? Tell us how you kind of got into that. And do you have this reflexive urge to get on stage and just go crazy like the Angry Samoan days? <laughs> or are you okay nah. just kind of doing the Greg Turner solo stuff I'm, and being I'm, more mellow? I'm, I'm sliding into my geriatric years pretty casually. Um the Blood Drain Cows was something. I moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico in 93 to get a teaching job here. That's what brought me out from L.A. And when I first moved out here, I was, I was, everyone says, oh, you'll love Santa Fe. It's such an artistic, anything goes town. You'll be great with the music. It was horrible. I mean, it was the most reactionary place I've ever lived where all these bar bands, bad bar bands thrived and people were playing Hotel California in clubs. I said, Jesus fucking Christ, I've gone to hell. <laughs> and, you know, but... Once you, I was here for several years. If you look under the surface, there's a, there is a lot of interesting uh, energy going on and people that are pretty hip. And I met these two guys, Matt Miller and Tom Trisnovic, that were total Rocky Kinks fans. And, uh, you know, when I saw their band play, it was some sort of garage band. They did uh, some Kinks song. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's hope. And so we got together and then that's how the Blood Drink Cows formed. We wanted to be sort of a garage psych band and we did... One record with Jeff Dahl, who was a Simone singer for a couple of years way back when. And he lived out in Arizona. And we did one record, the first one in 98 at his home studio. And then in 2003, Andy Chernoff from the Dictators, I conned him to fly out to New Mexico to produce the second record. And uh, he did that. And that's when I got Billy Bill Miller, who was the electric auto hard player behind Rocky Erickson in the 70s. Wow. The guy's prodigious. He's, he's an auto harp savant. He can play this beautiful and then dissonant melodies. And then he can sound like Jimi Hendrix or Lou Reed on a dime. I mean, he's just incredible what he can play. And he's sort of a nut too, so he fit in very well. And every time I'd record something, whether the Blood Drink Cows, and we played live with him too, I'd fly him out from California. And on my last two solo CDs, he was on there as well. Um, so the Blood Drink Cows were existing until about 2007 or 8 or something like that because the drummer finally moved to Austin, Texas. And, uh, gotcha. Um, yeah, so then it just after that, I thought, all right, I've said everything I can say pretty much about loud, aggressive, you know, in-your-face stuff, and I've gotten it out of my system. And uh, then it just sort of like 
got way into trying to be Jonathan Richmond, I think, <laughs> to a fault, and just decided that I was sliding to do this kind of stuff lately that I had never done before. And, you know, my, my singing range, I, I, I try to sing in earnest, but my, you know, range is maybe a fifth of an octave, so I try to get as much out of it as I can. Do you feel like you have one final, like, gigantic swan song act in you? Or I know you're doing some short stories, a tapeworm. What is it, the tapeworm oh, yeah, stories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And as other gastrointestinal nightmares, which I love that name. Right. Are you kind of fine just moving into those new, more low-key genres? Or do you feel like you have, like, one more piss and vinegar volcanic explosion left in you? Oh, I don't know. I, 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 I think that uh, I'm just sort of sliding into projects that uh, I've, I've been trying to finish for a long time. The short stories that I've written, um, which you just talked about, I've been on my computer for 20 years and I just thought I'd finish them up and try to put out a, get see if I can get a little anthology published. I miss writing. I, you know, I used to write for Cream for about 13 years and right. Stone a little bit. And so I, I miss doing that. And, uh, um, this stuff is sort of in, is much invective in a fiction way than that was. Um, so it's, it's something I'm trying to not let slide by, but most of the musical stuff and everything else I've done is just sort of whatever catches my attention and fancy at the moment. I just don't like letting things go loose ends. I mean, it's good too, at your age and with your level of st stability and everything, I'm sure you have financial stability if you're a professor. It's good to have options and to be able to do things at your own pace and make creative choices that are not made out of desperation, but made out of total like creative integrity. Well, that's the one great thing about you know academia. I mean, I've never been paid a lot of money for teaching, but it's enough that I can sort of fall back on and live and then do these projects without feeling aesthetically that I have the desperation to make money off of them. You know, it's just, if I do something that, you know, somehow catches a lot of attention, terrific. If not, that's fine. It gets it out of my system. Right on. All right. I think that's an excellent place to stop. Uh, before you get okay. out the door, one, I want to thank you very much for calling in. It's always great when we can talk to a legend. And after 30 years, I found out that our bartender at Olive Garden was in fact not in the angry Samoans. So it's yeah. good to get that little kernel out of my head. Can I can I tell you how about Ted Nugent tried to hunt me down with his bow and arrow? You know, it's funny because I read about that. And, Dee, you remember our <laughs> second episode of our political show, The mm -hmm. Ignorance Equation. I did a whole episode on Ted Nugent. You can't fucking stand the guy. We and right. I challenged him to a fight. I said, I'll get in a fucking boxing ring and wear an Obama mask. This is in 2013. Right. <laughs> and I like funny. jump on your fucking water buffalo. And I was slamming him, telling him the only people who still play his records are fucking hostage negotiators. And just going I, I, off. I, I, yeah, I wrote an LP review of one of his things in Cream, and right. uh, it was like a Dear Ted letter that suggested you get a Gibson Melody Maker because they're good guitars to learn how to play. Right. He, just, he, he busted a fuse over that and called my editor and wanted to know where I lived. Yeah, it doesn't take uh, much to set that guy off. He's a true no. fucking no. asshole. Right, you can only take satisfaction out of that. Yeah, but I sent that shit to his people, and um, I never heard back from him. I was hoping to meet him right. in a boxing ring. I thought it would be like, yeah. like, like I said, P.T. Barnum ridiculous promotion. Watching right. like, Saucy One fight Ted Nugent, mm -hmm. and um, it never came to be. But yeah, anybody who's had conflict with Ted Nugent, hats off to you. Yep. Because well, him and know, Dustin I, I, Diamond are my mortal enemies, even if they don't know <laughs> it. That's pretty good. I hate that little prick, too. All right, let me let you get out of here. Um, All right. Greg, can't thank you enough. Like I said, always great to talk to one of my punk rock heroes from back in the day. Before you go, appreciate that. tell everybody where we can find you online. Well, people are welcome to write me on email at turnergreg, G-R-E-G-G, at comcast.net. And uh, on Facebook, I have a band page of the new little three-piece that I'm doing. We're recording a little six-song demo right now. And... Uh, Hope to put out a, a full record in about six months from it. So it's the Greg Turner Group is the band page on Facebook. Right on. I'm going to have to check that out. And we're going to play some um, Nowhere Around by Blood Drain Cows on our way out. All right. All right. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thank you so much. I appreciate the uh, interest. Right on. And we will be back in a few days with our huge Halloween show. D, take it away. Look 
Don't come easy lying on the floor That's right, baby 